welcome to Iris for Sunday, March 5th, 2023. My name is Trevor, and I will be your reader today. Pardon me as I have a cold today, so bear with me. Uh, let's take a look at the Siouxland five-day forecast. For today, we will have a passing morning shower, and it will be breezy. Winds will be about 12 to 25 miles per hour, and we will have a high of 46. Tonight, it will be mostly cloudy with winds north northwest 7 to 14 miles per hour and a low of 33. On Monday, it will be cloudy, windy, and colder with a high of 39 degrees and a low of 29. Winds will be pretty brisk at 20 to 30 miles per hour. Tuesday, it will be cloudy, winds calming down 8 to 16 miles per hour, a high of 41 and a low of 30. Wednesday, it will be cloudy with a little snow. Not really sure exactly what that means, but we'll find out. Winds 8 to 16 miles per hour, high of 35 degrees and a low of 30. Thursday, there'll be periods of snow. Winds 8 to 16 miles per hour and a high of 36 and a low of 27. So still stay warm, everyone, as we still have some cold weather, but it won't be at least bitterly cold as we had earlier last month. Let's now look to the front page of today's Sioux City Journal, where we look to the editorial mini editorial at the bottom. This one comes courtesy from the journal editorial board and they write, here's an interesting twist. Nebraska politicians are considering eliminating party affiliation for all elections in the state. That could curb some of the bickering, but you could probably tell where the lines are drawn. All right, let's now look to the main spread story, which is about South Sioux City and their project to build their own wastewater treatment plant to no longer rely on the Sioux City wastewater treatment plant. Headline, $45 million treatment plant nearly nearly ready. Subheadline, South Sioux City plant to go online in April. From South Sioux City, Nebraska. South Sioux City is closing in on finishing a $45 million wastewater treatment plant, which is expected to begin taking industrial wastewater in April. Gold will take it slowly because you've got to build up the bugs in the process. It should be complete by approximately June, South Sioux City Administrator Lance Hedquist said. Roughly two years ago, the city broke ground on the plant next to the Missouri River and north of the Tyson Fresh Meats Lagoons. John T. Jones of Fargo, North Dakota, is the contractor for the plant. HDR Inc. and JEO Consulting Group are also involved in the project, which Hedquist said is coming to fruition ahead of schedule and under budget. Nick Milbrot, an engineer with JEO Consulting Group, said contractors are currently in the process of installing the plant's electrical components. The lights are on and the heaters are running. Go, I believe in the next two or three weeks we'll be getting boilers going, getting the water started, processing through our system as far as our clean water, he said. Quote, and then I believe at the start of April we're going to start transitioning to our new wastewater and making sure the process actually does what it needs to do. Pollutants must be removed from wastewater in order to protect the environment and public health. Milbrot said the current game plan is for 2 million gallons of industrial wastewater to flow into and out of South Sioux City's plant per day. Initially, he said wastewater will flow from industries in view of the plant to covered anaerobic lagoons where microorganisms or bugs eat fat, oil, grease, and high-strength waste. Quote, those will do most of the wastewater treatment that we have. And then, from there, we can either recirculate to keep water warm, treat as needed, keep the microorganisms growing at a healthy rate, Milbrot said, as he stood on the plant's grounds on a bitterly cold 
overcast day last month. Quote, the lagoons will generate biogas naturally through the bugs. One of the benefits to that is that we can use that to heat the boiler system as a fuel, burn the excess off, or in the future, if it becomes apparent we have plenty, we can sell it off. From the lagoons, the wastewater is pumped into the aqua narita aerobic granular sludge system, an advanced, compact, and energy-efficient nutrient removal process. South Sioux City's plant will be the first wastewater treatment plant in Nebraska and one of only a small number of plants in the country to utilize this technology. Narita is the name given to Royal Haskening DHV's biological wastewater treatment technology, also known as AGS, which purifies based on bacteria growing into compact granules. Quote, the inside of the granule doesn't have oxygen, so you have anaerobic ones. And then, kind of in the mid-space, there's a little bit of oxygen, but not much, so you have a different type of bacteria. On the top is separate bacteria like, like that, like air and need oxygen. They all work together. Ethan Joy, branch manager, project engineer for JEO Consulting Group, said of the patented process. The plant will also use ultraviolet disinfection as another wastewater treatment step before discharging into the Missouri River. Quote, otherwise the sludge that gets manufactured or processed will settle, concentrate, and then will make a cake out of it for land applications, Milbrot said. Oscar Gomez, South Sioux City's assistant city administrator, said industries south of Sioux City are looking to send their wastewater to the plant. He noted the city has plenty of room for growth when it comes to industry. Quote, we have over 200 acres under option that have all the utilities, water, sewer, fiber, electricity, available that's next to this location, he said. Then we have over 400 acres on the other side by Tyson, so we've got plenty of land for new industries. All wastewater from South Sioux City, North Sioux City, and Sergeant Bluff is currently treated at Sioux City's Regional Wastewater Treatment Plant. On November 25, 2019, the Sioux City, City of Sioux City gave notice of termination to its sister cities, including South Sioux City. Each of the cities received a letter signed by Mayor Bob Scott warning that the city may end the contracts that govern the amount of waste each community can send to Sioux City's Regional Wastewater Treatment Plant at 3100 South Lewis Boulevard and the rates each city pays. The termination notice was to become effective four years after the receipt of notice. The previous agreement with the South Sioux City had been in place for 38 years. The letter triggered the building of South Sioux City's plant, according to Hedquist. Quote, we were told that we had to find an alternative source for our industries in our area. We w went about to have the proper zoning in place. Obviously, we had to obtain the funds to build a facility. We're fortunate to get those things done and move forward with the plan, he said. The city of South Sioux City was awarded a $5 million grant from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to support the construction. The project also capitalized on a nearly $12.2 million U.S. Department of Commerce Economic Development Assistance Grant and on the Nebraska Department of Environmental and Energy State Revolving Loan Fund. Sioux City is currently examining rebuilding its aging wastewater treatment plant at an estimated $580 million cost. The Sioux City Council approved a new 25-year sewer treatment agreement with North Sioux City and Sergeant Bluff in November and Dakota Dunes in December. An agreement of the same length was approved with South Sioux City in January. Hedquist said a subsequent expansion to South Sioux City's new plant will allow it to take on residential waste. Construction on the residential portion of the plant, which is estimated at $22 million, is expected to begin late this year. Hedquist said it will take approximately three and a half years to build.
One of the basic functions of the city is to provide sewer service to people. It's a basic function we want to make sure that we have in place and the citizens of South Sioux City and future residents have adequate facilities to flush their toilet, he said. All right, let's now turn to the next story on the front page of today's Sunday paper. It's regarding Iowa capital legislation at the state law. Headline, Iowa lawmakers squash abortion proposals. Subheadline, GOP leaders awaiting on outcome of Iowa Supreme Court case from Des Moines. Among the bills that didn't survive Friday's legislative, quote, funnel deadline were those dealing with abortion, including proposals to ban nearly all abortions and the use of abortion pills in Iowa. The bill showed eagerness by rank-and-file Republicans to ban abortion following the U.S. Supreme Court overturning of Roe v. Wade in June, removing the federal right to an abortion and sending the issue back to states. But GOP leaders have said they want to wait for now on the court on the outcome of an Iowa Supreme Court ruling that could clear the way to ban abortions in Iowa after six weeks into a pregnancy. As of now, abortion remains legal in Iowa up to 20 weeks, but Iowa's legal landscape remains unsettled when it comes to abortion restrictions. Abortion rights advocates warn abortion access in Iowa hangs by a thread, and that GOP leaders have ways to revive legislation later in the session if they want to impose restrictions. Walgreens also announced last week that it will not distribute abortion pills in states, including Iowa, where Republican attorney generals have threatened legal action if the company began distributing the drugs, which have become the nation's most popular method for ending a pregnancy. And lawmakers were successful in advancing Senate File 324 that includes portions of Governor Kim Reynolds' sweeping health care bill, including a $1.5 million increase in funding to the 55 pregnancy resource centers in the state that counsel against abortion. Quote, for now, abortion remains safe and legal in Iowa, thanks to the uproar from Iowans about the proposed abortion ban, said Maisie Sitzwell, Director of Public Affairs for Planned Parenthood Advocates of Iowa. Quote, but make no mistake, this fight is far from over. Quote, even though Republicans in Iowa can't agree on how or when to ban abortion, their intent to outlaw it is crystal clear. We stand with Iowans and aren't backing down because people, not politicians or judges, should control their bodies and future. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd signed on to a letter last month warning pharmacy chains Walgreens and CVS of legal trouble if they follow through on plans to deliver abortion pills by mail. The letter, signed by 20 Republican attorneys general, argued that pharmacies risk violating federal law by mailing abortion pills, known as a medication abortion, contradicting guidance from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, which recently loosened restrictions, allowing patients to be prescribed the two-dose regimen without an in-person visit. Bird told the Quad City Times that she disagreed with the way that the drug, Mifepristone, was approved for distribution and had safety concerns about the broader accessibility of medication abortions. Abortion pills carry the added risk that when these heightened complications invariably occur, women suffer those harms at home away from medical help, the Republican attorney general, attorneys general wrote in their letter. And finally, mail-order abortion pills also invite the horror of an increased in coerced abortions. Outside the regulated medical context, a person can obtain an abortion pill quite easily and then coerce a woman into taking it. Medication abortions, which remain legal in Iowa, are safe and effective with fewer than 1% of patients having complications, according to the Guttmacher Institute, a research group that supports abortion rights. More than 79% of the 4,058 abortions performed in the state in 2020 were medically induced. Final data for 2021 was not yet available. 
Iowa was one of 13 states that participated in a national pilot and research project the FDA used to suspend in-person dispensing requirements for abortion pills for the duration of the pandemic. Sites sent study packages containing milfpristone and misoprostol by mail and had remote follow-up consultations within one month. Researchers determined that outcomes were comparable to in-clinic care and that the direct-to-patient telemedicine service was highly effective and critical to protecting patient safety during the COVID-19 pandemic. 20 House Republicans introduced a bill, House File 510, that states life begins at fertilization and banned nearly all abortions in Iowa. The bill, titled the Iowa Human Life Protection Act, states, quote, unborn human beings are entitled to the full and equal protection of the laws that prohibit violence against other human beings. Quote, abortion is a murderous act of violence that purposefully and knowingly terminates a human life in the womb, the bill states. The bill would allow Iowans to file lawsuits against anyone who performs an elective abortion, administers a drug that is intended to cause an elective abortion, or aids and abets someone seeking an elective abortion in the state. Lawsuits, though, could not be brought against the pregnant woman who gets an abortion. The measure would also require internet providers to block Iowans' access to websites related to abortion care. The spike proposal contained exemptions for in vitro fertility treatment, for emergency contraception such as Plan B, for intrauterine devices and medical care that is intended to treat miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies, for a medical emergency, or to save the life or preserve the health of an unborn child. House File 146 would ban the prescribing, sale, or transfer of, of milfpristone and other common drugs used for medication abortions. If the bill passes and is signed into law, dispensing the drugs would be a Class C felony, punishable by up to 10 years in prison, and a fine of up to $13,660. Both bills were quickly squashed by House leadership and never assigned a subcommittee hearing. Leaders in the Republican-led legislature said they're waiting on an Iowa Supreme Court decision on whether to reinstate a blocked law that would ban the procedure except in the earliest weeks of pregnancy before taking any more steps to restrict abortion in the state. Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford told reporters Thursday his position and that of Senate leaders and the governor, quote, hasn't changed. Quote, I wouldn't look at that as any sort of broad framework that's been laid out by leadership by any means, Grassley said of House File 510. Quote, we have members of our caucus that are very passionate about the issue and protecting the unborn. Quote, but from my perspective, until we see what the court does, I don't think you're going to see any action on pieces of legislation until we see what the court standards are set out. The Iowa Supreme Court is scheduled to hear arguments April 11th on a request by Reynolds to reinstate a 2018 law that would effectively ban most abortions once cardiac activity is detective around the six weeks of pregnancy before many women know they are pregnant. The Iowa Supreme Court in June reversed its 2018 decision and now holds that the Iowa Constitution does not provide a fundamental right to an abortion but justices have not said what standard they would use to view any new potential laws. Cool, we have said from the beginning that House Republicans will stop at nothing until every Iowan has lost their right to make their own health care decisions when it comes to the issue of reproductive freedom, House Minority Leader Jennifer Kornfist told reporters Thursday. Kornfist said the proposed near-total abortion ban bill is, quote, proof that this is true. Quote, we hear a lot of times that they're not going to do anything this year. We're going to wait. We're going to wait. The Windsor Heights Democrats said, quote, I believe it when I see it. Otherwise, I believe 
they simply can't help themselves. This is an issue, again, that rallies their base and, quote, goes too far. It's not what Iowans want, she said. More than 60% of Iowans surveyed believe abortion should be legal in most or all cases, according to a Des Moines Register slash Mediacom Iowa poll from October of last year. All right, let's now turn to the week in Iowa, or page A7 of today's paper. It's a quick recap of shorter news stories that happened last seven days. Headline, Senate passes trucking suit caps. Iowa lawmakers are moving forward on a proposal to limit awards for pain and suffering in lawsuits involving trucks and other commercial vehicles. The Senate passed a bill that would cap non-economic damages in those lawsuits at $2 million, mirroring limits on medical malpractice lawsuits Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law on Friday. The bill shields trucking companies from liabilities over an employee's conduct in most cases of negligence. Republican supporters said the bill provides stability for trucking companies and prevents so-called nuclear verdicts that award tens of millions of dollars. Democrats said there is little evidence of those high-dollar verdicts in Iowa, and Iowans deserve the right to have their cases heard by a jury. Ban on gender care for minors. House Speaker Pat Grassley said a ban on gender-affirming care for minors may be introduced as a slew of other Republican-led states are considering similar legislation. Doctors told lawmakers on Thursday the interventions are important for transgender youth to reduce depression and suicidality and improve other outcomes. Headline, Election Recount Changes. Election recount procedures would be standardized under a bill being considered by state lawmakers. The bill makes several changes on the timing and conduct of the recounts, and election officials across Iowa were generally supportive of the measure. Odds and Ends 2024 Watch Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley told Iowa Republicans that they need to, quote, move forward from former President Donald Trump as she seeks support for the 2024 presidential, Republican presidential caucuses. South Carolina U.S. Senator Tim Scott, who is often in Iowa but has not announced a bid for the White House, also appeared in the state last week alongside Governor Kim Reynolds. Headline, Public Universities Impact. The State Board of Regents released a report showing Iowa's public universities collectively added close to $15 billion to the state's economy in the 2022 budget year. The impact includes operations spending, construction, employees, and research. Unemployment changes. Iowans collecting unemployment benefits would be required to complete more job searches to maintain those benefits under a bill lawmakers advanced last week. Unemployed workers are now required to complete four job searches a week, but the bill would require them to do up to six depending on the availability of jobs in the state. COVID cases fall. Iowa's COVID-19 cases fell in the week ending Wednesday, but hospitalizations rose. The state reported 1,581 cases compared to 1,626 the previous week. There were 159 people hospitalized with the virus compared to 135 the previous week. Headline, Wolf will not seek eminent domain. Wolf Carbon Solutions will not seek eminent domain authority to build a carbon dioxide pipeline across eastern Iowa, according to a permit application the company filed Thursday. The company would be the only of three proposed pipelines not to seek authority to take land for the project, which has been a contentious topic for landowners along the routes of other pipelines. Headline, Landowners Rally Against Pipelines. 
as dozens of landowners and activists from around the state lobbied lawmakers on Tuesday to pass bills banning the use of eminent domain for carbon capture pipelines, lawmakers advanced a bill that would severely limit the projects. The three companies planning to build the pipelines in Iowa to shuttle CO2 from ethanol plants to reservoirs underground say that technology is vital to the continued survival of the ethanol industry. A bill advancing in the House would require the companies to obtain 90% of a pipeline's route through voluntary easement before being granted eminent domain and block the projects for a year or more until the federal regulator announces a new rules for CO2 pipelines. Headline, COVID reporting changes. Iowa will end its webpage for COVID-19 data and publish weekly data as part of its respiratory virus report starting in April. <coughs> the state health department will end its requirement that clinical labs report positive test results. All right, let's now turn to the opinion section or of section A of today's paper. Headline, don't play political games with Iowa's youth. This is the editorial. Quote, we're getting a mixed message from the Iowa legislator. On one hand, its members say teens are responsible enough to read certain books. On the other, they think it's fine if they work light assembly jobs. If they're so fragile they need parents to sign off on To Kill a Mockingbird, they certainly shouldn't be working at a bar where they could serve drinks. Similarly, if their parents need to be notified if they're expressing a different gender identity, they shouldn't be expected to fend for themselves in a factory. The disconnect is unreal and largely the result of an agenda that has nothing to do with parental rights and everything to do with lawmakers trying to justify their own uninformed beliefs. Routinely, we hear from Iowans who say they try to talk to the legislators about issues, most recently those involving LGBTQ teens, and those elected officials didn't want to listen or consider another view. Instead of being representatives for all, they have become speakers for a few. You don't need to comb the journal's archives to find examples of politicians finding common ground. Key legislation resulted in parties hashing over ideas and coming up with solutions that had bipartisan support. Even 10 years ago, you could see that give and take at play. Now there seems to be a wall that divides the state's two parties. Whoever is in control can push and pass legislation that has nothing to do with the economy or well-being of the state's residents. It's a when-we-get-in-power agenda that doesn't even consider consensus. Where does this lead? Down a never-ending spiral. If enough Iowans are dissatisfied with the legislation, they'll vote out those who forced it and new lawmakers and will introduce bills to change things back. What gets accomplished? Nothing. Using the state's children in a game of political football is one of the worst ideas we've seen yet. Let's now do the letters to the editor. First one is titled, Rates Need to be Fixed. And the letter writer writes, Please, can anyone tell me why seniors are paying the same for garbage pickup as people with families? I have only one dumpster in the winter and set it out one time in three weeks. Seems I'm being treated unfairly, as I'm sure other seniors are too. Signed, Anna Barnes of Sioux City. Next letter is titled, Questions About Cops. In reading the February 22nd edition of the journal, I came upon the story regarding the request of Police Chief Rex Mueller for the hiring of four additional police officers. Two questions come to mind. One, how is it that the police department is still limited to 127 officers? And two, how is it that the Sioux City still has Bob Scott on the city council? Just looking at his remarks to the police chief in regard to his request of four officers, and Scott offering two, when his hypocritical reasoning was that you'd need at least six to redraw districts. Maybe Scott has been in the position of power for too long that he sees it as an opportunity to disparage rather than offer intelligent input on an issue. Last I seen, other than doing a Citizens Academy, Bob Scott 
has no law enforcement experience. Perhaps he would do better to sticking to his tax business. You can do better, Sioux City. Signed, Mark Wyant of Marshalltown, Iowa. All right, let's now turn to the sports section or section B of today's paper. Headline, Pender claims state title. Subheadline, late FTs lift Pendragons past Oakland Craig from Lincoln. Another bruising game between league rivals, another win at the wire. After splitting the first two games of the season against Oakland Craig, Pender took home a first state title in a decade with a 45-42 win in the all East Husker Conference Class C final at Pinnacle Bank Arena. Quote, it's exactly what we expected. It did not take us by surprise at all, Pender coach John, Jason Dolliver said. We knew that this was going to be the case, and this is our fifth time in the last two years we played them. And we knew exactly what we were going to get from them. It was a matter of us just stepping up to the table and making sure that we bring our A game to when it comes to effort, and gosh, they did that like crazy today. His sophomore daughter, Maya, broke a 42-42 tie with a pair of free throws with 31.7 seconds left. After a missed three by the Knights, Dolliver was found on the rebound and made the first of two free throws. Edlin Rennerfelt took a rebound down court and launched a 30-footer that hit high and right on the glass at the buzzer. Go, it just felt like one of those games that was going to come down to one or two possessions, Knights coach Scott Gazinski said. They made some free throws at the end, and we missed a couple of shots, and that was the difference in the game. Number one, Pender, has led by as many as 10 points in the first half and still by three going into the fourth quarter. Number four, Oakland Craig, in its first state final, plunged ahead 40-37 to with three minutes and 42 seconds left on two free throws by Chaney Nelson and a layup by sister Sadie Nelson off a Pender turnover. Individual free throws by Dolliver and Lily Tom cut it to one. Then Olivia Nelson's three-point play with one minute, 22 seconds left, regained the lead. Sidney Gazinski's two free throws tied the game for the seventh and final time. Maya Dolliver had a team-high 16 points. Kristen Frey was four of eight on threes for 12 points. And Chansey Nelson's 18 took game honors. Well, we played them three times this year, Coach Dolliver said. They scored 43 points, 43 points, 42 points. We had a pretty consistent defensive effort against them. All right, let's continue with our sports stories. Headline, Central Lion Falls in Finals. Subheadline, Dyke New Hartford Beats Lions for Second Straight Year. From Des Moines. With Central Lion trailing by double digits in the closing moments of the Class 2A final Saturday night, head coach Heather Gaffing gathered her team together in a circle. She said, quote, keep your chin up. We've got to get, we've got to the state championship game and we're undefeated until then, Central Lion Junior Destra Hugendorn said. Hugendorn and her teammates found solace in that after the Lions lost to Dyke New Hartford in the state title game for the second straight year. Leading wire to wire, the Wolverines captured their third consecutive state crown with a 64-49 victory in the Class 2A state championship game Saturday at Wells Fargo Arena. DNH with the game with Frith the win became the eighth program in the state history to win three consecutive titles. Peyton Peterson had 19 points and 11 rebounds, and Jaden Peterson had 19 points and nine rebounds. The Wolverines shot 61.5% from the field and overcame 18 turnovers to defeat the Lions for the second straight year in the title game. 
DNH held University of South Dakota signee Addison Kolsterbauer to just nine points. Kolsterbauer, who came into the game averaging 19.9 points per contest, and her teammates struggled throughout the game with Dyke New Hartford's zone defense. Quote, they talked all the time about where number 11 was, which was me, Kolsterbauer said. I was in the corner most of the time, and there was a girl always by me, so I didn't get my shot off as much as I wanted to, but give them credit, they're good. Quote, we play all year long, but they have such great shooters. I didn't think that we'd be able to stay in it, but we were able to. Dyke New Hartford head coach Bruce Dahl said. Peyton Peterson, who was named the Class 2A All-Tournament Team Captain, said all the credit for that goes to Camry Landpier and 6 foot one Marin Bixby, who front DNH's 2-3 zone. Our defense did an amazing job today. Camilla and Marin locked down the top. You don't know how a team is going to fully respond to it, and we were prepared to get out of it because they can pass, cut, and shoot. But our top people did an amazing job. Quote, we are long and healthy, and maybe we didn't block a lot of shots, but we got into their faces and threw off the rhythm. Our toughness on top of that. Two to three zone is obvious, added Dahl. The length Marion provides, she can touch the rim. Stick on her top of the two to three zone, that helps. Colster Bauer commended the twin sisters, Peyton and Jaden Peterson, for their performances, as they combined for 38 points and 20 rebounds on Saturday. Quote, they're very aggressive. They're very good. They want to score all the time. Their team was great, she said. Peyton Peterson had 19 points and 11 rebounds, and Jaden Peterson had 19 points and 9 boards. Amazing performance, Dahl said. One day I'm going to look back and say, wow, that is amazing. But right now I'm just enjoying the moment. While the Wolverines never trailed, Jaden admitted that she never felt safe. Quote, I think when the clock hit zero, then I knew we were state champions, Jaden Peterson smiled. We were just trying to stay focused because we know basketball is a game of runs and you never know when the other team is going to make one. I'm, I'm just so proud of this team. Very grateful for every one of my teammates. This is really awesome. The Wolverines shot 61.5% from the field and overcame 18 turnovers to defeat the Lions. The DNH led 32 at 21 at halftime as Bixby hit a three-pointer from the left corner as the buzzer sounded. The Wolverines led the entire first half scoring the first five points, including a Bixby triple. But the halftime score did not indicate how tight the opening 16 minutes were contested. Central Lion forced 11 DNH turnovers, and it kept the Wolverines off the boards, in particular the offensive boards. In last year's title game, DNH recorded 18 offensive rebounds. Back-to-back three-pointers by LRA Canock gave DNH a 19-12 advantage early in the second quarter after the Wolverines led 13-9 after the opening eight minutes. Bixby and Knock's offensive contributions were critical to DNH's victory. Bixby finished with a tournament-high 13 points and had four steals, while Knock had eight points, four assists, and two block shots. Quote, truly amazing, and that is what I think is special about this year, is everyone contributed. It wasn't just one or two players scoring, Peyton Peterson said. Everyone was an offensive threat, and it wasn't just one person. Jaden Peterson scored on an inside bucket with three minutes and 29 seconds to half to push the lead to nine, 25 to 16, one of the six times she answered a central Lions score by scoring on the Wolverines' next possession. The Lions pulled back to within six, 25 to 19, on a Dion Jansma three-pointer with one minute and 54 seconds to go. 
Both teams had a chance to seize control in the final one minute and 30 seconds, but multiple turnovers and missed shots occurred before Bixby hit her buzzer beater. Up 11 points to start the second half, the Wolverines, who got big games from all starters, including five straight three free throws from Camilla Landpierre, to open the third as DNH built its lead to as much as 17, 42 to 25. The lead was 14 or 50 to 36 after three, and it felt like Central Lion was on the verge of a run. It came on back-to-back hoops by Alexis Austin and Destra Hugendorn that pulled to the Lions to within 57 to 47 with three minutes and 44 seconds to go. But Jaden Peterson made one of three, one of two free throws, and Peyton Peterson grabbed the miss and put it back with two minutes and 34 seconds left in the land, and the lead was never less than 13 again. Graffinger said her team never gave up, even when trailing by double digits in the game. They never had any quit in them since they've been little, she said. I thought the kids did everything I asked them to do. I'm super proud of these guys of what they've accomplished. Hugendorf led the Lions with 16 points, and Jansma had 12. Afton Schulenbaum played a fine floor game of 7 assists and 4 steals. In the end, it wasn't enough to against a veteran team that now has five state titles, two volleyball and three basketball experience under its belt. DNH joined a group of seven other programs to win three straight. Newell Fonda did it last from 2019 to 2021, and with three starters back, have a chance to go four straight in 2024. Cool. We are going to enjoy this one, Dahl said. Then we are going to have a team meeting and talk about what is ahead of us and challenges. But to be honest with you, we have not set any goals. The three-peat thing, there have been no goals. We don't set goals. What I found out is that we don't want to limit ourselves by setting them too low. Four in a row next year, that has significance. In 1924, Audubon won its fourth consecutive state title, and if DANH were to find a way to do it again, it would be exactly 100 years since the last time it did it. That just gives me shivers, Dahl said. I don't want my kids to know that because we talk one game at a time, but that gave me shivers because I'm a big history buff, and to be mentioned with those Audubon teams in the 1920s is pretty amazing. All right, next story from the sports section. Warriors earn first crown. Subheadline: Willow Bleeker leads Sioux Center with all-around play. Again, more girls basketball. From Des Moines, Willow Bleeker's contributions to the Sioux Center girls basketball team go well beyond a stat sheet. Just ask her head coach who considers the senior guard the heart and soul of his squad. Quote, she does little things on the floor, Doug Winterfeld said. She just takes control down the stretch. She wants the ball in her hands. She's that stability on the floor that everybody looks at and says, oh yeah, Willow's got him. Willow's going to get us where we need to go. The five foot eight inch floor general helped take the Sioux Center to the promised land Friday night as the Warriors captured the school's first state championship. In the historic 62-47 win over Benton Community in the Class 3A finals, Bleeker finished with 17 points, 3 assists, 3 rebounds, and 2 steals. The point guard committed just 2 turnovers while playing all but 3 minutes of the game. Her stellar performance throughout the three-day meet in Des Moines led to her selection as the Class 3A All-Tournament team captain. Joining Bleeker on the All-Tournament team was her teammate Tatum Schmalbeck. Schmalbeck, who came into the finals averaging 7.9 points per game, exploded for 16 Friday night, with nine coming on three timely shots from downtown. Quote, she isn't afraid to take the big shot, Winterfield said. She's got the green light. 
The senior guard's final three-pointer put Sioux Center up 50-34 to with 3 minutes and 53 seconds left in the game. Benton never got closer than 12 points the rest of the contest as the Warriors hit some late free throws to seal the win. The final horn set off a jubilant celebration by Sioux Center players who formed a dog pile on the court at Wells Fargo Arena and shared hugs and, share, and shed tears of happiness. Quote, it was an entire team effort throughout the entire game, Bleeker told the crowd in a live post-game televised interview. The two teams entered the championship game boasting top defenses with Benton holding opponents to an average of 38.3 points per game and Sioux Center permitting only 45.6% per contest. Sioux Center's defense proved more potent Friday night, holding Benton to 36.2% shooting in the game. Jen Twett, the Bobcats' leading scorer, finished with a team high of 21 points, but with just 8 of 23 from the field, including 3 of 11 from the three-point range. The Warriors' zone defense, which the team calls a, they called the scramble, frustrated Twett and her teammates as the Bobcats scored just 27 points throughout the first three quarters. Quote, she's an awesome player she creates for her team, Bleeker said of Twett. We knew she likes to drive, she likes to attack, so putting pressure on her helped us. She was forced to kick it out or put up a different shot than she was used to. Bleeker, whose quick hands and feet regularly disrupted the Bobcats' offense, said the Warriors play all out on defense, constantly hustling to the perimeter or the corners. Quote, a player is never out of position just because we don't know where they're going to be or where they need to be or anything like that, Winterfeld said. We are playing passing lanes and being super aggressive with it. The triumph completed a Cinderella-like run for Sioux Center, which entered the eight-tournament, eight-team tournament as only the sixth seed. The Warriors blasted third seed West Marshall 79-53 to in the quarterfinals and nipped second seed Slowland 46-44 in the semifinals. Some experts may have overlooked the Warriors because of their five regular season losses, but four of those defeats came versus Siouxland Conference rival Central Lion and Sibley O'Shaden, who each reached the Class 2A semifinals this week. Undefeated Central Lion will play for a state title Saturday. The Warriors' other loss was a 30-point blowout at home to Conference foe West Lion. Th- that's the game that propelled this team to where they're at tonight. Winterfeld said. Our girls, girls decided that after the game, that wasn't how we wanted to play. We took Central Line into overtime two days later with no practice in between. You have to give the girls a lot of credit. A win over conference rival Boyden Hull in the last regular season game also provided a valuable lesson, he said. Bleaker, Sioux Center's leading scorer with 12.2 points per game average, was held scoreless against the Comets. Go, but her teammates stepped up. We still put up 67 points, the coach said. It was frustrating for her, but down the road it actually helped us because now her teammates knew they could do it. Schmalbeck scored 20 points in the Boyden Hole win, Winterfeld noted. The performance gave the senior added confidence that led to her memorable performance in Friday's title game. In the second quarter, Schmalbeck scored 8 points that fueled 12-8 to eight runs. She nailed two three-pointers midway through the quarter and then hit a two-point jumper that gave the Warriors its first double-digit lead, 24-14 to 14, with 44 seconds left in the period. Ben's Emma Townsley answered with a jumper in the lane with 27 seconds to play that cut the deficit to 24-18 at the half. In the second half, the Warriors stretched their lead to double digits on multiple occasions. Completing a coast-to-coast drive, Schmalbeck scored 
and a scoop shot and drew the foul. She completed the traditional three-point play to put the Warriors up 35-22 to with 2 minutes and 20 seconds left in the third. Quote, I just do whatever my team needs to help us succeed, Schmalbeck said. If I need to execute those shots, I was glad I could get those to fall for my team tonight. The 5-foot-7-inch senior credited her father Ryan and her coaches for helping her refine her shot. Well, we worked on some things that really helped me grow as a shooter, she said. I could see the benefits of that this season. During the season, the Warriors developed strong depth with six players, Margot Schulterman, Makina Wolof, Corgi Hallard, McKaylin Vanderwall, Schmalbeck, and Bleeker, averaging six or more points per game. In Friday night's win, Winterfeld rotated eight players in and out of the game. The exception was Bleeker, the three-year starter and senior leader, who will stay in Sioux Center for the play for the Dort University women's basketball team next season. Cool, I just know that I have to be a leader out there, either vocally or just giving a pat on the butt, helping them gain confidence and trying to get them open. All those little things helped us become champs, she said. All right, let's now turn to boys' college basketball. Headline, Iowa State ends four-game skid with win at number 7 Baylor from Waco, Texas. Iowa State coach TJ Otzelberger got everyone involved in the regular season finale, and the Cyclones got a big boost going into the Big 12 tournament after the dismissal of one of their players. Jalen Holmes scored 16 points, and the Cyclones used all 11 available players within the first seven and a half minutes of a 73-58 win over 7th-ranked Baylor on Saturday that ended their four-game losing streak and came only three days after veteran guard Caleb Grill was dismissed from the team. Quote, we've got a lot of depth on this team. We've got a lot of heart, Otzelberger said, and we need to re-harness or bring in with our group that togetherness, that unity, everyone playing for each other. And there's no better way to get everybody playing for each other than to get everybody in the game and to feel that energy and that enthusiasm. The King, who started for only the second time this season, had 13 points and 7 rebounds for the Cyclones. Grill had 22 of his states of his 25 games, and that was Iowa State's third leading scorer when Otzelberger said the guard had failed to meet program expectations. Grill said later on social media that he had been dealing with mental illness. The Cyclones, who had lost six of their previous seven games, built as much as a 14-point lead before halftime, when Baylor had a 10-0 run to cut its deficit to 36-32 with 15 minutes and 29 seconds left in the game. Iowa State scored 11 in a row with a three-pointer by Gabe Koschelauer's three-pointer capped to cap the run that pretty much sealed it. Quote, we were hungry for a win, and we were desperate, said Koschelauer, who had 12 points. And we did a great job of all just coming up saying that we're going to do and doing it. Adam Flager had 20 points with five three-pointers for the Bears, while C.J. Cryer added 13 points. Baylor's 77-62 loss at Iowa State in the Big 12 opener on New Year's Eve was part of a 0-3 start in conference play. The Bears had won 12 of 15 cents, but shot only 35.8%. From the field, 55.6% on free throws and were out-rebounded 36-24 and likely their last Big 12 home game in the 35-year-old Farrell Center. Quote, they're a physical defense. We didn't do a good enough job running our offense and fighting to get our offense lower and in executing, Baylor coach Scott Drew said. When we did 
get a good enough looks and we didn't have enough of them. We didn't make them. It looked like everything was short today. Those things that made us a good team, we didn't do. Baylor is moving next season into the Foster Pavilion, which is still under construction just down the street on the edge of campus. The plan is to play their non-conference games in the Farrell Center and debuting in the new center at the start of Big 12 play. Iowa State, big picture. As they have to open, as they have to opponents all season, the Cyclones kept Baylor out of sync with various defenses. The Bears' 22 points at halftime marked their fewest in any half this season, and they matched their season-low scoring total. Iowa State has lost nine in a row in the Farrell Center. Baylor standout freshman Keatone Georgia, George finished with seven points on three of ten shooting after the missing Monday's victory at Oklahoma State because of a right ankle sprain. George got hurt early in a home game against Texas last weekend. The Bears played without freshman guard Langston Love, who was poked in the eye in the first half against Oklahoma State. Six Baylor seniors were recognized before the game, but man, Flo Thamba is the only one of that group who doesn't have any eligibility remaining after this season. Flager, Dale Bonner, and Jonathan Chichamba Techautrucha were among the others who could return. Up next, the Big 12 tournament in Kansas City. Neither team will have to play in the opening round and will start in the quarterfinals on Thursday. And now let's switch to women's college basketball. Headline, Iowa women gain Big 10 semis. Minneapolis, the 7th-ranked University of Iowa women's basketball team found its shooting touch in the nick of time Friday night in the conference finals of the Big Ten Conference Tournament. In the Hawkeyes, the Hawkeyes overcame a third-quarter deficit and finished off Purdue with 9 of 13 shooting in the final quarter of a 69-58 victory at the target center. The 69 points were the second fewest of the season for Iowa, but enough to move the 24-6 defending tourney champions into a 4 p.m. semifinal Saturday against Maryland, a 73-58 winner over Illinois. Quote, they tried different defenses, tried to slow the game down because they knew we wanted to push it in transition, Hawkeye guard Caitlin Clark said. Quote, but I think the biggest thing is that they played hard until the final buzzer. A sluggish second quarter in which Iowa hit just two of ten shots and turned the ball over six times allowed the Boilermakers to overcome a 19-10 to 10 deficit after one quarter. Quote, we got off to a great start in the game, but in the second quarter, we just couldn't seem to get anything going, Hawkeye coach Lisa Blunder said. Too many turnovers we let up a few times on defense. Boilermakers coach Katie Ger- Geralds, Felt her team did a good job of mixing defenses in the second quarter and keeping the ball out of Clark's hands. Quote, I thought we had done a really good job of trying to keep the ball out of Clark's hands in transition, making sure they were out letting it to someone else because she is so dynamic in transition and it makes them incredibly impossible to guard, Gerald said. Purdue built pulled within 29-25 to at the half and took the first lead of the game when Cassidy Harden buried a three-point basket to give the Boilermakers a 34-3 lead with 6 minutes and 27 seconds to go in the third quarter. The game was tied at 36 when Hannah Stuckey took a feed from Clark and scored on a fast break to push Iowa in front to stay just before the midpoint of the third quarter. Gabby Marshall followed with her third three-pointer of the game and sent Iowa on its way to a 45-40 lead after three quarters. Kate 
Martin drilled a three-pointer, and Clark, who scored 12 of her game-high 22 points in the fourth quarter, hit a jumper to fuel a 15-3 run over the first four-and-a-half minutes of the final quarter to put away the game. Quote, I thought we really responded in the second half, Clark said. Quote, we weren't intimidated by the box and won it all. We got some easy buckets. Gabby really stepped up and made some huge shots. I thought Monica was really good when she got touches. Susano finished with 14 points on 6 of 7 shooting. Her work included 6 points in the opening quarter, but she only attempted 4 more shots after hitting the 3. She attempted that in that first frame. Bluter was pleased with the way the Hawkeyes worked the ball, including inside and out during the final 20 minutes. Well, we talked about half about getting the ball into the paint. I think every time we did that, we were scoring on in-out threes or Monica was scoring, Blutter said. We only had 10 points, paint points in the first half, and we finished with 28. So we did a much better job of getting into the paint in the second half. Marshall was connected on 17 of her last 28 to three point attempts in Iowa's last eight games, contributed 11 points. Quote, there was a stretch in there in the third quarter where we lost our heads a bit and they knocked down some open shots, Gerald said. Gabby Marshall hit some open looks. They got a couple of rim runs, which coaches never like, but I felt we were tough too. Jayla Smith led the Boilermakers coming off the bench to score 16 points. All right, let's now turn to business, section B of today's paper. Headline, Farmers Co-op Society to Build Grain Elevator. Subheadline, Facility will be ready for soybean storage by the fall. From Burrsford, South Dakota. The Farmers Cooperative Society this week announced plans to build a state-of-the-art soybean elevator at the northern edge of Union County, about nine miles south of Burrsford and adjacent to Interstate 29. The Sioux Center-based, member-owned Farmers Cooperative Plans to break grounds this week on the facility referred in a, to in a press release as the Union Grove Elevator. It's about a mile or two north of the Union Grove State Park. Plans call for the elevator to be ready to receive soybeans by the fall. FCS Director of Marketing Communications, Jen Sawyer. Once completed, the outfit will consist of a 2.5 million bushel flat storage building plus an office and a scale. The unloading system will be capable of handling 30,000 bushels of soybeans per hour. The flat storage building, as the name implies, is not a tall structure the way many grain elevators are. Still, it can be considered an elevator in the broader sense of being a place where grain is received, weighed, priced, stored, and shipped in bulk. Quote, there will definitely be a need for it in this area, Sawyer said in a phone call. Our South Dakota locations, they're very, very busy. The facility, which Sawyer described as, as a several million dollar investment, will be FCS's 10th site overall and third in South Dakota. The cooperative operates in northwest Iowa, southeast South Dakota, and into a portion of Minnesota. Over the past several years, we've been expanding more into South Dakota, Sawyer said. The site offers the opportunity for future expansion, Sawyer said. The co-op would like to add corn facilities to the site at some point in the near future in the next couple of years. One of the great things about this site is that we have room for expansion, Sawyer said. All right. Well, with our time together, let's do Dear Abby and recap the weather, and then we'll say goodbye. All right. Abby's column. Headline, Friends Struggle with Diabetes Cause Concern. 
Dear Abby, my best friend, who is 54, has had type 1 diabetes since she was 9. She takes two insulin shots a day, one in the morning and one in the evening. We live together, and at night her blood sugar drops pretty low. I can't tell when it's happening because she becomes unresponsive. Twice she has had seizures that resulted in 911 calls. I've begged her to please try adjusting her insulin dosage so it doesn't happen again, and she says she will, but it's still happening. I don't want to act like I know more about her condition than she does because I don't. When it happens, it's really scary and I'm worried she will die. I've told her this, but she keeps doing the same thing. What can I do? Signed, Caring Friend in California. Abby writes, Dear friend, you're a wonderful friend and your concerns about your best friend's health are understandable. I ran your letter by Dr. Robert Gabby, the Chief Science and Medical Officer of the American Diabetes Association, who had a lot to say. I found it educational and I hope you and other readers will agree. Abby, People who have had diabetes for many years sometimes lose their ability to tell when their blood sugars are low. There are a number of ways to deal with the situation, but the most important for her is to talk to her health care provider. What things can be done to help her? One of them would be to equip her with a glucose monitor, which monitors blood sugar continuously and warns when blood sugar is starting to get low so that she or you, if you're there, can administer fast-acting carbohydrates. Another is a medication called Gluacagon. It is administered by injection and quickly raises someone's blood sugar when it drops and the person is unable to respond. This is something the friend or family member can be taught to use. It is commonly used by someone other than the person with diabetes because it is supposed to be administered when the individual is unconscious. Finally, it is extremely important for the person with diabetes to understand why her blood sugars are dropping and what changes in insulin dosage are necessary. The key is that she speak with us about her healthcare provider. Dear Abby, I recently moved away from my home state and across the country. In a text to my mother, I suggested that she come to visit me and stay in my place. A few days later, in a family group text, my father mentioned he is looking forward to visiting. While I am polite to my father for my mom's sake, I do not want him to visiting or staying in my home. The invitation was strictly for her. How can I tell my mother this without upsetting them? I would really like for her to visit, but I am simply not comfortable seeing my father. Signed, Uncomfortable in the East. Abby writes, Dear Uncomfortable, is your mother aware of your feelings about your father? If she is, tell her how you feel and why. If she's aware, then she was wrong not to let him know that the invitation was for her only. Pick up a phone, call her, and make her clear you do not want him to accompany her. All right, let's just do a quick recap of the weather for the next five days. Again, today we got a little bit of snow, passing morning shower, breezy, uh, winds. 10 to 25 miles per hour, high of 46. Tonight, it'll be mostly cloudy, low of 33. Monday, cloudy, windy, and cooler, high of 39, low of 29. Winds 20 to 30 miles per hour. Tuesday, cloudy, high of 41, low of 30. Wednesday, cloudy with a little snow, whatever that means, high of 35, and a low of 30. And Thursday, periods of snow, 36 as a high, 27 as a low. So that brings us to the end of Iris for Sunday, March 5th, 2023. Your reader has been Trevor, and I hope you all have a wonderful day. Take care of yourself, and if you can, someone else. Bye-bye.